serious about Jesus and his word, and here are, a, uh, here are people who are putting into practice uh, the scriptures in their lives and loving each other and their, the surrounding community well, and we would love for you to be part of our community here and join us. Uh, this morning, uh, before we get into the scriptures here, I want to make just a couple of announcements. First of all, this is a new idea. I realize that change is hard. Um, and, uh, and some of you may not be totally warm to this idea yet on our bulletin. Um, and if you're not, that's fine. Give us a month to tweak it and play with it. Um, and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll try to, um, make, uh, adaptations as we need to. But what we're trying to do is come up with something that is, uh, sleek and easy to, to, uh, get a hold of the vital information. So, uh, other thing I want to tell you related to our youth pastor search, our associate pastor that we're looking for, uh, first of all, our, our youth group is growing, and so we need that guy to be here as soon as possible, uh, but we are uh, currently still searching on that. We, uh, we thought we had someone identified, um, but have uh, gone a different direction with that, and then, uh, so we're still searching, uh, but the other side of that is this, is that Karen and I are kind of filling in here in all of our spare time uh, with the youth group and really enjoying that and having a great time with the students, uh, but we need some additional help, and if you are interested in helping with that, we would love to have your help. Uh, one of the things we would like to look at specifically is actually dividing our youth group into two groups. Uh, so that we would have a senior high group as well as a junior high group. Uh, I know some of our senior high students are in band, and that makes life difficult for them to be here on Wednesday night and so forth. So uh, if you are interested in that in specific, uh, talk to Karen, talk to me, and we'd love to uh, get to a place where we could actually have youth groups uh, in our church, uh, and that would be a great thing, an exciting thing. So uh, this week we're going to be in uh, Genesis. We're going to look at another chapter of Genesis. Last week we saw that Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, moved away from his family and soon gave himself and his family over to the sins of the Canaanites, uh, including sleeping with his own daughter-in-law whom he mistook for a prostitute. Uh, if you missed that sermon or you missed that chapter, uh, you might want to go back and read that. Uh, but part of what we talked about was that it's dangerous to be away from those who know you and who will call you to account. But we also saw that God's grace reaches even into the lives of people as sinful as Judah to bring them good even out of their sin and to bring glory to God out of even the worst of things. And this week we're going to be launching more fully into the life of Joseph, who's another one of the sons of Jacob. And Joseph functions in the book of Genesis as a literary foil for his brothers. And what that means essentially is, is this, is that he is a giant contrast to everybody else in his family. Whereas everybody else in his family is morally and spiritually screwed up, Joseph is the example of someone who is godly and someone who follows hard after the commands of God, even though he's isolated from his family. Uh, Joseph's story this week is pretty similar in some ways to Judah's story. 
He's a young man, he's all alone, he's a long way from home, and an appealing woman is going to make herself available. And it is a test of this young man's character and what he will do when he will not be found out. And if you want to think about that for just a second, here's these wor- hear these words from Thomas Macaulay, who's a 19th century British politician. Real character is not measured by what a man does in public, where he'll be seen and rewarded for good behavior. The measure of man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. For in the light we all smile and put on our masks of perfect character, but in the dark, where there is no light to reveal, a man's true character comes out. Will the, the darkness reveal that the man is evil or saintly? Hard to know. Only the man can measure his own character, for only he knows what face he is making behind the mask. So, what do you think about Joseph? What face is he making behind the mask? Let's pray, and then let's dig into God's word together. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts and in specific minds for the preaching and the reading and the study of your word, that as we look at it together, that it would hold a mirror up to our souls and that we would see where we fall short of your good commands and purposes and plans and where we need your grace to step in to grant us forgiveness and a new start. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has never experienced ultimate forgiveness from you through faith in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell, Father, I pray that person would find salvation today at this very moment. And Father, I pray further that if there's anyone here who is guilty of sexual sin or who is wandering close to it, that you would be using this message and this chapter of Genesis to be pricking their heart and tuning their conscience to hear from you and to lead them to repentance. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bible open, uh, Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard... An Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that the Lord, all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, just to review, if if you're uh, catching up on this story. Joseph landed in Egypt because his brothers, uh, led by his brother Judah, who we looked at last week, had sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelite traders who were on their way down there. 
And when the Ishmaelite traders got there, they sold him again to this man, Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Now, this is a position that would be similar to, in our terms, head of the FBI, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and head of the Secret Service, all rolled into one. This guy is a powerful, rich man with access to the Pharaoh. He is one of the most powerful officers in the entire land of Egypt. He's part of the cabinet of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, remember, at this time, Egypt is the leading empire of the entire globe. It is the most powerful nation on the planet. And Joseph has been sold into slavery to one of the most powerful men in that kingdom. And that was not a coincidence. Joseph did not just happen to wind up there. God was superintending even these evil circumstances in which he had fallen to bring good for Joseph and glory for himself out of it. In fact, look at what the text says. In six verses, there are two statements that the Lord was with Joseph. Two statements about how the Lord blessed Potiphar because Joseph in his, was in his house. And one statement about the fact that the Lord caused everything Joseph touched to prosper. In other words, it was God's intention to use these negative circumstances in Joseph's life to bring himself glory and Joseph good. Everything that Joseph does just turns to gold. It just starts just prospering. So if Potiphar put him in charge of the herds, well, all of a sudden they've got more flocks than they can know what to do with. And if Joseph's in charge of the crops, then they've got wheat and stuff coming out of their ears. And if Joseph was in charge of the groceries, well, then all of a sudden they started getting a fabulous deal down at the market. Everything he touched is blessed by God. Why? Because God is with him. In fact, at the end of this chapter, you're going to see again, the Lord is with Joseph, and the Lord is with Joseph, and the Lord is with Joseph. Because God is, is present even in these negative circumstances. Now, raise your hand if you would like to be sold into slavery. Not me either. But nevertheless... Sometimes I think that I think we think that God has this intention that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. I can tell you based on the scripture, in fact better than that, based on Jesus' life as recorded in scripture, that that is not true. And anyone who tells you that if you become a follower of Jesus or if you are a worshiper and follower of the true God, that you are going to therefore have King's X on your life and nothing bad will ever happen to you, has lied to you. What the scripture records over and over is that in spite of negative circumstances, in spite of suffering the consequences of other people's sin, in spite of everything, that God is still with us. And that God is able to bring blessing for his people even in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances. And that's the point of these first few verses. And God so prospers and blesses uh, Joseph and, and, and 
on account of him, Potiphar, that Potiphar all essentially says, you know what, I don't even worry about anything. The only thing I'm concerned about is whether I want a sandwich or whether I want steak. The only thing he's concerned about is the food that he ate. In other words, what do I want to eat today? That's my big decision. Now, how many of you would like to have somebody in your life that was that level of trustworthy? They just took care of everything, except for whether you're going to have a sandwich or, you know, corn on the cob. You know, I would like that. I think that would be great. You know, you don't have to take care of anything. Joseph was that guy. He becomes steward of Potiphar's house. And he has charge over everything in that house. And he is, he is so completely trustworthy and so blessed by God that everything that he does makes his master more and more successful and prosperous. And just as an aside, by the way, even though we don't have slavery anymore, thank God, uh, let me just ask you a question. Are you faithful in serving the men and women that you work for? You know, I'm sure that, that none of your bosses, as horrible as some of them might be, have ever gotten out a stick to beat you with. None of them have ever sold you down the river to anywhere. But nevertheless, we as believers in Jesus Christ have a calling to be faithful to our employers. If we have a boss, we work hard, and we do what honors the Lord in that job. Amen? And, and it ought to be obvious to our bosses, as it was to Joseph's boss, his master, that the Lord is with us, just as it was obvious that the Lord is with Joseph. Amen? Amen. Are, is, is your boss more blessed because you work there? Is your boss more blessed because you work there, or are they waiting for the day when you will retire or quit? Or are they building a file on you for the day they can let you go? Or is, that, or is your boss grateful for the day that you came to work for them? Because that ought to be their response. Amen? All right, let's move on. Where Joseph's virtue is more obvious. Now, look here, verse 6, uh, the second half of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her, of her household 
and said to them, See, he has brought us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, this is pretty amazing, actually, when you really think about it. This is a man that's living a long way away from home. He's living as a slave, although he's living as one with tremendous power and authority, because being Potiphar's chief steward would have meant outranking even the vast majority of free citizens of Egypt. It would have been easy to get both prideful and self-justifying, thinking, first of all, that you are the prime cause of all your prosperity and that you deserve the kind of sinful reward this lady is offering. It'd be easy to start to think, you know, if God really cared about me, then how come I'm in Egypt as a slave? Because people who want to justify their sin can usually come up with a justification. They can usually come up with some sort of a, a faithless rationalization for why they should be allowed to do what they know to be sin. Yet, Joseph never does that. When this lady comes on to him, she comes gliding up, and I imagine she is perfumed and looking good. She's got all of her feminine wiles and charms working. And by the way, noble women in Egypt wore garments of fine linen that were basically sheer. So she is on display, and she comes up to him and says, Lie with me, Joseph. And this lady is probably not the castle crone, okay? Rich and powerful men have a tendency to attract beautiful, attractive women. And she comes floating up, and she says, Lie with me, big boy. Is that a temptation? Son, that's a temptation. And she comes offering herself not once and not sort of subtly either, but boldly and repeatedly. And she doesn't just say, lie with me one time. She says it day after day after day after day after day. And Joseph refuses and refuses and refuses and refuses and refuses. And at first, he refuses pointedly and verbally. Look at what he says. He says, look here. My master has no concern about anything in the house, and he, he is himself not greater than I am. He's put everything in my charge, but he's not given me you. Why? Because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, he's saying, look, this is a sin in two ways. 
First of all, it would be a betrayal of my master's trust on an epic scale. He trusts me completely with everything in the house. But you're not something in the house. You're his wife. And it would betray him, this man who has put his trust in me. And on top of that, it would be sin against God. I can't do this. Go away. Leave me alone. And in fact, because she won't leave him alone, he figures out how to be somewhere wherever she's not. He won't be around her. He won't hang out in a room where she is. He won't listen to her invitations. Every offer that she makes, he flees from. But one day, they're all alone in the house. All the other men are gone, and she literally throws herself at him. And she grabs his clothes and begs him to sleep with her. And he slips out of his robe and runs out of the house. And finally, disaster strikes. Because as Shakespeare said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so she hatches a plan to save her bacon and fix Joseph's little red wagon. She calls all of the men of the house in and she shows them Joseph's robe And she claims that he is an attempted rapist. And she calls all them in, so she wants them to be witnesses. She says, you know, I screamed, and you all must have been too far away to hear, but I screamed and he ran, and he left me his coat. And she says, you know, when I'm going to wait till the old man comes home, and I'm going to tell him this same story. Potiphar comes home, she tells him the same tale, and and check this out, there's even a racial element she throws in here with it. She says, this Hebrew, to an Egyptian, people who, who herded sheep like Hebrews were low class, and they were unclean, and in fact, the Egyptian word habiru means literally dusty one. Slave. And it's feigned righteous indignation, and it's a lie. It is a lie that is bold faced, and it is absolutely untrue. There's nothing to it. In fact, very nearly the exact opposite is what has happened, and yet this is what she says. And because she is his wife, she is believed, and it's a lie. And this is, by the way, the second time that Joseph has had a lie told about him regarding his clothes. The first one was with his brothers who lied about the the many-colored coat that he had that symbolized his rank in the family of Jacob. And his brothers peel that off of him and they dip it in the blood of a goat and then they take it home to dad and say, is this your your son's clothes? Because we found this out in the wilderness and it looks kind of like his. And in actuality, what they've done is they've sold him into slavery in Egypt. Then he gets into slavery in Egypt, and he's absolutely exemplary and noble and a man of, of, of not perfect, but noble character. 
and his master's wife grabs his clothes and accuses him of rape. And, and, and just like the first lie puts him into bondage, this puts him into further bondage. Let's read on. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord is with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever, the Lord, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph is lied about, though he's a man of character and nobility. And it would have been easy at this point to start thinking, well, how bad could it have been if I'd actually sinned? I mean, if I'd been caught, I might not have actually gone to jail. And I probably wouldn't have been caught. She wasn't going to tell, and I sure wasn't. He doesn't do that. He goes to the gulag, the place where the King's prisoners are kept, and yet, even there, notice what the text says twice. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord was with him and caused his plans to succeed. And, and it emphasizes that because it's emphasizing that in spite of everything, God still has a plan for Joseph, and God is still able to bring good to Joseph and glory to himself, even when Joseph is imprisoned. And in fact, Joseph becomes kind of the substitute warden over the prison. The actual warden just says, you know, whatever Joseph tells you, do that. He's in charge. I'm going to go have a sandwich, a cup of coffee. Can you imagine that? He, his... his Noble character is so obvious that the warden of the prison, where he is a prisoner, puts him in charge. Why does that happen? It happens because God is with him and God is blessing, even in the prison. Now, I think the practical application from this passage ought to be obvious, but I want to underline just a few, uh, just in case you might miss it. First, I want to tell you how you can get yourself involved in sexual sin. Just in case you're curious, just in case you would like to do the opposite of what this text recommends, I'm going to give you some practical instruction on how to really get in, way out in your relationship with God and to be a person not of noble character but of ignoble character and be a person who is a negative example to all and sundry around you. So let me give you that first. The first thing, and these things all start with E, because of the ease with which they are done. The first thing you want to do, absolutely, is eliminate relationships that would hinder your ability to sin. And so, if you have a marriage, let that grow emotionally distant. 
and let it become functional instead of passionate and deeply connected. Uh, get emotionally and even physically, if necessary, distant from any brothers and sisters in Christ who would be close enough to you and love you enough to call you to account. Get away from them. Above all, let your relationship with God grow distant and grow cold. Read your Bible and pray as little as possible, only when you feel like it, and soon you won't be doing it at all. And that'll help a lot. And the second step is to encounter a person with whom you would like to be sinning. Very often it won't come in the form of a person who is as obvious as Potiphar's wife. Maybe you guys will be working at your job and you will have a new girl that becomes part of your department. And she's pretty. She's got a nice personality. She doesn't know a whole lot and she's looking to you maybe for some help and you start spending a lot of time together. Maybe you even go to lunch. Because, you know, you're helping her out. And eventually you start talking, and then you start sharing a little bit more and a little bit more. And you start having conversations that go like this. You know, I wish I could talk with my wife like this. You're on your way. Maybe if you're a, maybe if you're a woman, you run into a guy over at Pierce, or maybe you run into one over at your job. And as you spend time together, you realize this guy is really neat, and he really listens to me. He pays attention. I wish my husband would pay attention to me like this. Or if you're single, you know, I've never had a guy listen to me quite like this guy. And pretty soon you start talking. Or maybe you're Maybe you're a young single and you're just decided you'd like to find a non-Christian you'd like to date. Somebody that really isn't much into Jesus or the Bible or church. And then what you want to do after you encounter this person is you want to escalate the relationship and as much as possible build an emotional connection to that person and find reasons to accidentally run into him or her and to talk at a deep level and to soothe the need that you are feeling for deep relationship with that person, and to communicate then your feelings to him or her. And once you do that, you are already hooked. Because you have already built the bridge to Fantasy Island. Very, very few people ever repent and turn back at this stage, because what they have done is that there are neurochemical things that go on in your brain that are the equivalent as you get into relationship with someone you ought not, that are the literal, physical equivalent of injecting straight heroin into your vein. And you feel great as you're about to be in sin. But there's still a couple steps left. Fourth step, excuse the sin that you are doing. Kill off any tinges of guilt that you might feel. Tell yourself there's some reason that you ought to be allowed to do this, that you deserve this, that somehow God has shorted you or is withholding from you in some way something that you should have had. 
and you'll be well on your way to excusing your sin. And, you, and the best one you can come up with is, you know, I really think God would want me to be happy. And finally, all you've got left is the final step. Experience your sin. And you will sow the wind and you will reap the whirlwind and you will exchange everlasting eternal reward from God for the pleasures of sin for a season. And this method works 100% of the time. And if you do these things, you will be of the two sons of Jacob most like Judah and not at all like Joseph. Do these things and you will be a lot like the pagans in our culture than a light that shines in its darkness. But, praise be to God, we can have, if we want it, grace to live differently than that. Amen? We don't have to go down that road. The fact is, any dead fish can float downstream, but you are not dead. You are not dead. You can swim upstream of your culture. You do not have to do the things that they do. You do not have to live as they live. You do not have to walk as they walk or talk as they talk. You can be Joseph in Egypt. You can be the person with whom the Lord dwells and experience his blessing and be found a faithful servant who enjoyed God's blessing now and his reward in the hereafter. And if you'd like to be a man like Joseph, on the other hand, a woman like Joseph, it really comes down to two things. Number one, be faithful when no one is looking. Be faithful when no one is looking. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, tells those who are servants to serve their masters well, not merely by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. In other words, not just when your parents will check up on you, not just when your boss is around, not just when somebody might see you walk by the computer when you're on it, not just then, but when no one is looking, when no one is aware of what you do except you and the Lord, be faithful even then, because the Lord is with you and the Lord is watching. And that ought not necessarily fill us with fear if we are believers in Christ, but we ought to realize and have some reverence for the fact that the Lord of the universe sent his son to die on the cross for my sin, and so I ought not engage in it headlong. Amen? Because if what I'm about to do is one of the things which put Jesus Christ on the cross for me, I ought not take delight in it. So be faithful when no one is looking. And second thing is, flee from sin even when it's tempting. Flee from sin even when it's tempting. As I said, this woman was alluring and bold and persistent. But Joseph didn't go nearer. He didn't see how close he could get. 
You know, some people, some Christians that I know, in fact, even a lot of young people, what they, one of the questions that comes up whenever young people are dating or single people are dating is they want to ask their pastor, well, how far is too far? In other words, how close can I get before I'm in sin? What can I get away with, pastor? And what I want to tell them is, is that when it comes to sin, we ought to be like a person who is driving their family on a mountain road. We do not see how close we can get to the precipice before we fall over, all that, though that might be thrilling, right? Not least because we have wives who will be going, stop, <laughs> right? But we have the Holy Spirit within us who fills that function in a moral sense, right? Who tells us, hey, get away from the edge, clown. Don't do that, right? Don't do that. Flee from sin. Paul says, flee. The Bible says, flee. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pull it out. If your foot causes you to go into sin, get out a saw and chop it off. And we go, well, you know, sin's really not that bad. I mean, Jesus, you know, isn't that hyperbolic? Well, yes, it is. Because Jesus knows that blind and maimed people can still sin. But his point is still the same, that we got to get serious about this. we got to get serious about this and realize that sin is something which will take your life. Paul says this, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What I'm saying is this, is that whatever things that were part of our past need to remain part of our past. Peter says it this way, you have spent enough time in the past doing the things the pagans do. Amen? I certainly have. I have certainly filled up my life with all manner of stuff I am ashamed of. And said things I can't take back and done things that I would give anything in my life to undo. And I'll bet so have you. And I praise God that they are cleansed by the blood of Christ and that I will not have to stand before God and give account for them because they are covered. But nevertheless, I do not want to pile up more of them. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would be your faithful servants when only you and we know. Because what is done in secret will be disclosed from the housetops. And what is known simply to you and to us 
as a way of making itself known in public. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be your faithful servants by your grace, that you would help us to flee from sin even when it's very tempting, and it can be, in our day especially, very tempting. We live in the midst of a dark culture headed further into darkness with all of its energy. And it is, it is awfully easy to get pulled along with it. Father, I pray that we would flee. I pray that we would flee from sin and toward you. And that we would run to you. And be embraced by your arms. And that you would be with us. Even as it seems that we are living in Egypt. And Father, we pray for your mercy, for your grace, for your forgiveness when we fall, but for strength to stand in an evil day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.